it's church time, so kids, head on out before Gary closes the doors. And uh, for the rest of us, there it is. Kids church time, go ahead. Everyone else, turn with me for the last time to the book of James. I didn't hear a, a moan. Oh, last book, last time. Last sermon in the book of James, and uh, next Sunday we will be pressing forward into the wonderful, lengthy, amazing book of Job. And so uh, turn with me for the last time. To the book of James. Hey, let me borrow your Bible. Oh, there it is. Under my guitar. All right. As I was about to say, but I need to practice what I apply, it's always good to bring your Bibles to church. And uh, I left mine in the Sunday school room, so I'm going to snag my wife's here. Uh, book of James is where we're going to be, and we will be at the very end of the book of James. And so we have been plodding along in the book of James all summer long. And uh, as I mentioned before, next week we will venture into the book of Job. And so if you like to read ahead, Job is a wonderful book. Um, it is lengthy, um, but no worries. We will only be spending one sermon. I know you're all thinking this. One sermon on the very middle part where there's dialogue forever and ever and ever. Um, but there is something to learn there. So book of James, chapter 5, verse 16, is where we're going to find ourselves. So if you would just uh, pray with me one more time. Father, I pray for your presence here. I pray that you would speak through me, uh, that your spirit would come and uh, open our hearts. pray, spirit, that you would allow the word to come in power and impact our hearts and lives. Uh, such practical things that you have to speak uh, to us through your word today. So I pray that, uh, that people would have eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear, and that my mouth would communicate that clearly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final sermon in the book of James, uh, How To's for the Christian Life, is where we've been. And our final how-to is how uh, to subdue sin. And so let's go ahead and jump on into verse 16, if we have verse 16 up there. There we go. Verse 16. Uh, we are going to be talking about how to subdue sin this morning. Uh, I want to begin with a, a quote. There is an anonymous quote uh, from a soldier of war's past, and it's a simple quote, uh, but I think it's a fairly profound quote. He says this, No one likes to be in a foxhole alone. No one likes to be in a foxhole alone. Now, I have never served in the military, nor have I been close to any kind of battle, uh, but I found these words to be very true, uh, the closest that I actually got to something like this. Uh, several years ago, when I was still a youth pastor, uh, I would take our students on different trips, and our kids, my students, um, were begging me to go play paintball. Now, I will be honest, I'm not a real big paintball fanatic, um, but I was a good youth pastor, I'd like to think, and so I said, we're going to go play paintball. And so one Saturday morning, we got up early and we drove out into the woods to play paintball. And I want to compare my paintball experience uh, of not liking to be in a foxhole alone. The first time uh, we played, there were like two different games, if you will. In the first game, they called every man for himself. And as you can figure, that game went something like this. Every man was for himself. And so the point was to stay alive, to not get shot, last man standing, that kind of thing. And so they sent us off into the woods, you know, with boundaries, and every person was for themselves. And so you were off by yourself with a gun in the mask. Uh, and if you're me, praying to God that you don't get hit somewhere to where it would really, really hurt. And so I was out there on my own, and this quote became very true to me in that moment. No one likes being in a foxhole alone. I did not enjoy that very much because I was always looking around, always looking, uh, you know, 
behind me. No one has my back. I know that everybody is out to get me, and I'm the only one fighting in this battle, if you will. It's just me against 20 or 30 other people roaming around in the woods somewhere. Um, I didn't make it terribly long. I think I made it about half the game, and one of my students snuck up behind me and Gave me a pretty good welt, I think, on my arm. And so I was out. Um, but the second game went much better. The second game wasn't every man for themselves. The second game was like two team capture the flag. And so the point of the second game was that you, you know, we did a, divided up into two teams. There was a fortress, there was a flag, if you will. And the point was as a team to work together to go capture the flag and bring it back to your fort, right? This I liked much better because we were out in the battle and I wasn't in the foxhole alone, if you will. I had teammates and so we broke up into groups and, you know, my team's purpose was to guard this and, you know, this other section of my team was to go capture the flag, as you know if you played something like that. But I really enjoyed that because someone had my back. I wasn't playing alone. I was with it together and I wasn't in the battle by myself. No one likes to be, so says this anonymous soldier of wars past, no one likes to be in a foxhole Alone, and, and this morning, as James concludes uh, his wonderful little book, I think the tr- the same is true for believers. What James is going to say is that no believer, no Christian, is supposed to be in a spiritual foxhole alone. We're not meant to play the Christian life every man for himself. It's supposed to be more like two men capture the flag. Spiritually, the Bible says that we indeed are in a battle, but we're in a battle with sin. We're in a battle with our flesh, which delights to sin. Uh, we're in a battle against the world, who wants to entice us to sin. We're in a battle against Satan, who tempts us to sin. And so, in this Christian life, it is a spiritual battle. And we can't, as James is going to show us, we can't live it, we can't fight it alone. No one likes to be in a foxhole alone. And so this morning, James is going to tell us how we can subdue sin in our life. Really what James is going to tell us is how we need to help one another subdue sin in our life. And he's going to show us three ways to do that. And so if you're taking notes, here's a real simple outline. Number one, confession. The first way that we help each other subdue sin is through confession, verse 16. The second way that we help one another subdue sin is through prayer, verses 16b through 18. We have confession, we have prayer. Finally, the third way that we help one another subdue sin in our lives is through what I call responsibility. And so in verses 19 through 20, we have responsibility. So we're going to look at this final text and see three ways that we can help one another fight the spiritual battle together. So let's begin in verse 16. What I'd like to do is read the, read the text together, and I'll read it from our screen here. James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, moving on, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man of a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently uh, that it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So let's jump back to verse 16. The first thing that we see, the first way to subdue sin is through confession. 
through confession. I read a story um, this week in my preparations, and the story is of four pastors. Uh, not a true story, and I wasn't one of them. Uh, but four pastors met with regularity, um, and they discussed their ministry, they discussed their personal life, and uh, they prayed for one another as pastors should and do. And so these four pastors were doing this for a while, and one day they came to the breakfast table, and one of them said, you know, uh, we really need to, I feel God laying a burden on my heart that we really need to begin to confess our sins to one another. You know, we um, help our people and uh, we, uh, you know, listen to other people when they're struggling with sin issues. We need to be accountable to one another. We need to confess our sins to one another. And so they all agreed that that would be a good idea. And so the first one began and he said, well, what I really struggle with um, is uh, I like to... I like to play cards. I, I, it's my advice. I know I shouldn't, uh, but I like to play cards. And so they, they encouraged him and they prayed for him. And so the second one went and he said, okay, it's my turn. Um, I like to go see movies uh, on Sunday afternoons, and my denomination says I shouldn't. And so he confessed his sin to them, and they prayed for him, and they encouraged him. And the third one uh, said, okay, it's my turn. I, I need to confess some sins to you. Um, I, 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 I eat too much. I eat too much dessert, and, and I can't control my eating habits. And so uh, they comforted him, and they began to pray for him. And so it came time for the last pastor to confess his sin. And they, they all looked at him, and, and they said, well, are you going to confess your sin? And he kind of looked at them and you know, was really hesitant. And so they urged him. They said, we've all confessed our sin. You need to confess your sin. You know, what is it that you struggle with? What's your vice? You know, we've all shared. And he said, well... Uh, you know, I really struggle with, with gossiping. And so I can't wait to get out of here. See ya. Any last. <laughs> now, James says we need to, in verse 16, confess your sins to one another. And so the real question is, what does it mean to do this? I mean, what does it mean for us to confess our sin? What does the word confess mean? Uh, it essentially really means to acknowledge uh, a wrong done, to acknowledge something, a sin, to one another. It's, it's not a terribly complex idea to acknowledge before another person a wrong that we've done. Uh, we do this privately uh, before God. First John 1 John 1.9 says that we should confess our sins uh, and that God is faithful and just to forgive our sin. And so we do this privately in our relationship with God. We confess our sin. As Christians, but we also do this, what I would call publicly. And James here is talking about, I believe, the public variety of confessing your sin. And by public, I simply mean to another individual. It's not between you and God, it's you're confessing to another person with flesh and blood on. Now, as you read about this, uh, there is some ambiguity here. A couple, James could mean a couple things. I think he actually means both. First of all, some commentators believe that James means that we are to confess our sin to one another when we wrong one another. And so when I call you something I shouldn't call you, when I mistreat you, when I say something evil about you, when I wrong you, when I hurt your feelings, then I should come to you and confess that I have wronged you, that I have hurt you, and confess my sins to you. That is certainly a biblical concept, and James very well could be talking about what I would call, you know, uh, confessing your sin when you hurt someone. But James also could be talking about a more general confession, that is, going to another believer, not that you've harmed them, not that you've hurt them, but you go and you are confiding in, you are confessing to another believer uh, a sin issue in your life, a habitual sin, an ongoing sin, maybe even a rebellious sin that you are holding on to. And James could be talking about here going to another trusted believer and you are confessing, admitting before them and before the Lord um, your sin. 
I personally think that James is probably talking about both. It's ambiguous here, and so I think James has in mind probably both. It means if you hurt someone, that you should go to them. It means if you are involved in a habitual, ongoing sin, and you need to talk to someone, a fellow believer, that you go and you confess to them. And so a couple applications, really simply. First of all, what this means for us, what it means for me, is that I need to be in the habit of confessing my sins against one another, against other people. Um, I don't know about you, but this is hard to do, is it not? When you know that you have wronged someone, when someone has something against you, when someone has articulated it to you, or maybe they haven't articulated a wrong that they feel that you have done against them, it's a very hard thing, is it not, for us to go to a person in humility and to confess our sin and to say, I wronged you. I acknowledge that this is what I have done. I think if you're like me, uh, it's really easy for me to do this as a Christian to God. It's very easy for me to say, God, I messed up. I recognize that I hurt so-and-so. I recognize that I wronged them. I shouldn't have said this, and I shouldn't have done that. God, I, can, I confess it to you. That's kind of easy, you know? It's easy for me. But on the flip side, it's hard for me to go face-to-face with that person and to acknowledge you, uh, that I have wronged you. I have done something against you. By way of illustration, uh, not to go into terribly much detail, about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, um, as happens in regular marriages, um, I did something and I, I made a decision and I hurt Shelly. Um, I made the wrong decision. I, she felt uh, unvalued. She felt un- unappreciated. She felt like I chose something else over her. And so I, I wronged her. And so I got home uh, from that event uh, that afternoon, and uh, Asher was asleep. And we had a few words, <laughs> a very few words. And uh, Shelly took a nap. She wanted to go take a nap. And so I was uh, pretty frustrated about it. And so I said, I'm going to go take a bike ride. And so I got on my bike, and I was pedaling, and I took a bike ride. I don't know, 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. I'm not real sure. Uh, but I took a bike ride. And to illustrate this point, I, I found myself praying and thinking through the circumstance. I found myself thinking and praying, okay, what, what did I do? Why did I do it? Uh, did I wrong Shelley? Okay, yes, I can see how I wronged Shelley. And it was very easy, and maybe I hope you can relate to this, it was very easy for me to acknowledge, as I rode on my bike, God, I, I've done wrong here, I've made a bad decision, you know, would you, would you forgive me? But that was easy. But what was hard was to then come back to the house and to face my wife and to say, I made a, I made a wrong decision here. You know, this, is, this is what I did and this is why I did it, but I see how I hurt you and, and I was wrong. That, on the other hand, is very, very difficult. And I found myself biking and pedaling and thinking through the circumstance and thinking not so much about how I should confess to her that I was wrong, but thinking about why she could possibly be wrong in accusing me. You know what I mean? Thinking about, well, did she really consider this? Or, well, but this was, you know, you know what I mean? Like you're struggling and you're spending all this time thinking about why she was wrong and, and you know, how I was right and how she possibly didn't understand when really what I needed to consider was that I was wrong and that I needed to go and confess that to her. And so I want to ask you, maybe there is something that you have done against someone else. Maybe you know of someone that you have wronged. Maybe they think that you have wronged them. Maybe you don't agree or maybe you do. It doesn't matter. But someone has something against you. Maybe you this morning need to go and you need to find that person and you need to bite the bullet and you need to see them face to face and you need to say, 
You need to confess your sin. You need to say, this is how I have wronged you. Secondly, this could mean that we should uh, confess our habitual sins to one another. Remember the context. The last week we talked about the context of God's divine discipline. Last week in James, verses 13 through 15, we saw a scenario of God's divine discipline of bringing a sickness, of bringing an illness on the life of a believer for rebellion, for unrepentant sin. And so the second thing I think that James could be saying is that if we have habitual sin, sin that we're hiding, sin that we realize that we need to confess, not only to God, but to someone else. And so what this means practically for me and you is this. Do you have an individual in your life, maybe a spouse? Do you have a group of people, maybe trusted friends, maybe a life group or a family member or a Sunday school class or a best friend? Um, that you can go and confide in, that you can go and say, this is what I'm struggling with. I've been rebellious in this area of my life. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. I've been holding on to this grudge. I've been saying this. And I want to confess my sin to you as an individual or maybe a small group of people that you know will, tr- will love you and will pray for you and will, will help you on that path. So James says the first way that we can help one another in this spiritual battle is through confession. Through confession. In his large catechism, Martin Luther, uh, he's uh, a wonderful writer and he's written a ton of stuff. In his larger catechism, I really like what he has to say about confession. He says this, Therefore, when I admonish you to confession, I am admonishing you to be a Christian. He says, when I admonish you to confession, I am admonishing you to be a Christian. And James is doing exactly that. James is admonishing us to be Christians. To confess our sins to one another and to help one another subdue sin in our life. And so we've seen confession in verse 16. Moving on, the second way that we do this is not only through confessing our sins to one another, but through praying for one another. Notice what James says at the tail end of verse 16. And pray for one another. And then there's a result clause. Why? What's the result? What's going to happen if we confess our sin to one another, if we pray for one another? That healed talk about that in a second. And so James simply says we should confess our sins to one another, help one another out. Secondly, in the spiritual battle, we should pray for one another. So the question that automatically comes to my mind is, how should we pray for one another? What should we pray for one another for? I mean, there's a million different things that we can pray for in the life of another Christian. We can pray for their physical ailments, for sickness, for those kind of things. Um, and, and none of those things are bad. But I think specifically what James is talking about here is what I would call uh, praying for a, person, a person's spiritual life. Praying for the battle and the struggle against sin. Remember the context. It's, James says, confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. I'll talk about that in a second. But I think what James is talking about is praying for one another, praying for one another's spiritual life, praying for one another's struggle with sin. And so I think this could go two ways. First of all, we could pray what I would call preventative prayer. What I mean by that is we're praying for a person to have a close walk with Jesus, another believer in Christ, that they would walk with God, that they would know Jesus, that they would uh, read their Bibles, that they would be faithful to church, that, they're, uh, that they would know more and more of Scripture, more and more of God. It's preventative. We're praying for their spiritual life because we don't want them to fall into sin. Secondly, we could, we could pray what I would call remedial prayer. And that's basically, we know of someone, we know of a believer, and they're in sin already. They are rebelling against God already. They're struggling maybe with a particular sin, and you know it. And so we can pray uh, what I would call 
you know, remedially. We pray that they would overcome that. We pray that they would make right decisions. We pray, we pray that they would respond maybe to God's discipline and correction in their life. We're praying for someone who is uh, backsliding. And so James simply says, if you want to help one another out in the body of Christ, in the spiritual war, not only confess your sins, but pray. Pray for the spiritual life of your brothers and sisters. And notice, as I mentioned before, what's the result? He says, that you may be healed. And so we confess our sins, we pray for one another, and there's healing. Uh, I think very clearly here that James is talking about physical healing. Remember the context. James, in verses 13 through 15, was talking about a Christian who was under divine discipline. They were sick, they were physically ill because of sin. And so what James is saying here is if, if you take these preventative measures, if you confess your sin to one another, if you pray for one another, you will be physically healed. That is, you're going to avoid that kind of circumstance. You're going to avoid sickness due to sin. You will keep and maintain your health, is what James is saying. And so he says, pray for one another. And then James, in verses 17 and 18, he kind of takes a little bit of a rabbit trail to further encourage us and explain what he means uh, by this. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. The, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Um, essentially what James tells us is, man, you need to pray for one another because it's powerful. Three things that he tells us here about prayer. Uh, three really important things, I think. First of all, notice the emphasis. The emphasis is on the power of a praying individual. Notice the prayer of a righteous person. Singular. So James here is not talking about group prayer. He's not talking about all of us getting together and praying for someone, although that's perfectly legitimate and good. The point that James wants to make is that the power of one believer, the power of you praying, the power of me praying is significant. So the emphasis is on just one person, the power of one person praying. Secondly, he says that prayer pretty obvious, is our avenue to God's power. It's our means to God's power. The prayer of a righteous person does what? Has great power. And so what that means is, is if we are burdened for a believer, if we're burdened for our son or daughter or a brother and sister in Christ, there's someone God has in our life, and that person is struggling spiritually. What James is saying is that the most significant thing that we can do for them is pray. That's what James is saying. We can do a lot of other things, and we should. We should encourage them. We should talk with them. We should encourage them to go to church. We should get them in their Bible. All sorts of things that we could and should do. But what James says is if you really want to help them, pray for them. Pray for them. Thirdly, notice this. If we want our prayers to be powerful and effective, we have to have what I would call right living, a right manner of conduct. Notice what he says. The prayer of a, what? Righteous person. James includes this word intentionally. Because what James wants us to know is that we could be a believer, but if we are not righteous, not righteous as in perfect, not righteous as in perfectly covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, completely forgiven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about right living, right relationship with God. Are we living and conducting our life as a believer in a way that's honoring to God? That's what he's talking about. And he says, if we're not, well, then we can pray all we want. But it's not going to move the heart of God. He says, the prayer of a righteous person. So the question that I have to ask myself and that I want to ask you is this. Is the quality of your life qualify you? Does the quality of your life qualify your prayers 
to be powerful and effective for others. And that's what I have to ask myself as well. And so James then moves on. He gives us an example. He wants to encourage us, and he gives us an example. And he uses an example from the Old Testament. James has done this throughout the book. Uh, Job comes to mind most recently. And he gives us a picture of what this looks like. I'm not going to go into this in, in, in any depth, but he, he points to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Notice verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what that means is he wasn't Superman, you know. He wasn't Jesus Christ. He was fully human, just like ours, frail, weak, imperfect. What he's saying is Elisha was just like you. He's just like you. And he prayed fervently that it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Can you imagine that? Three years Because Elijah prayed, and God answered, and it did not rain on the earth. Three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave their rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, you can check this out later, but the context is in um, Elijah's battle, if you will, with the Old Testament prophets of the idol Baal, and with evil king Ahab. If you remember the story of of Elijah battling the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. Remember, they danced around and there was no fire and Elijah says, God, bring fire. And boom, fire came. And in that context, Elijah, three years earlier, had prayed, Lord, this is an evil nation. It's a rebellious rebellious nation. Don't send the rain. Don't send your blessings. And God did not on the nation of Israel for that long. And then he won this showdown, if you will, with the prophets of Baal. And he went and read the passage. It's pretty cool. He knelt down and he prayed. And God sent a little cloud, and a little cloud came, and a little cloud turned into a huge rainstorm. And the point that James is making is that, look, prayer matters. Prayer works. Elijah was a righteous man. He was just like you and me. But he prayed, and look how God answered his prayers. That's the point. He's giving us an example. And so I want to ask you, do you know of any Elijahs in your life? Do I know of any Elijahs in my life? People that when they pray... Heaven seems to be moved. When they pray, not that they get what they want all the time, but when they pray, it's according to God's will. And God moves supernaturally through their prayers. Do you know of people like that? And if you do, those kind of, these kind of people, these kind of people are meant to encourage us to be those kind of people. When we look at them, we are meant to say, I can pray like that. I should pray like that. And so James has given us a couple, a couple ways to subdue sin in one another's life. Confession and prayer. James ends his wonderful book in verses 19 through 20 with what I would call responsibility. James says, not only should we confess our sins to one another in the spiritual battle, not only should we pray for one another as the spiritual bullets are flying, but we need to practice what I would call responsibility. Notice what he says in verses 13 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you... Notice that, among you, that is amongst the church, amongst believers. My brothers, if anyone amongst you wanders from the truth and, and, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Essentially what James is talking about here is our mutual responsibility. Our mutual responsibility as believers in Christ to bring an errant, a wandering, a rebellious believer when we come into contact with them and we have a good relationship with them back into a right relationship with God. You see that? Notice, notice the language here. 
My brothers, if anyone among you does what? He talks about, he lays out the scenario. If someone, there may be a believer among you, there may be a believer among us, among, among this church, among your relationship of, of networks, who will wander from the truth. Wander from the truth. When you look at the Greek, essentially this word has the idea of someone who is walking on a path, and so have in your mind with me, someone who is walking along a path, along a road, and they either intentionally or unintentionally go off that path. They veer off the road and they become hopelessly lost. That's this word, wonders from the truth. And so you're walking as a believer on the straight and narrow, if you, if you will, and you're walking the Christian life and inadvertently... You step off, or rebelliously, you step off that path, and you are wandering from the from the faith. You're off the path. That's the scenario that James paints. That that could happen among these churches and among us and amongst your relationships. That could happen. And so then, what should we do? What is our responsibility? And essentially, what James says is our responsibility then is to get them back on the right path. You see that brings him back. He uses that word twice. Uh, twice. Someone brings him back. Whoever brings him back. So the idea then is they're not on the right path, and we take their hand and we lead them back to the correct path. You know, I want to share a quick story with you. Um, as many of you know, or if you don't know, you will after this, I am directionally challenged. And what I mean by that is I don't know north from south and east from west. What that means is that when I stepped onto the fairly large campus of Texas A&M. I went to my first class, and I went to this huge building, uh, and I entered in one door, and as I left after that class, I exited the other door on the other side of the building, looked around me, didn't recognize my uh, surroundings, and was completely lost for 15 minutes because I went out the other door. I, I'm directionally challenged. I get lost very easily. I don't have a you know, good sense. Um, I lose my cars in parking lots, things like that. Um, but there's a wonderful little thing that they've invented now uh, that is helpful for people like us, and it's called the GPS, the Global Positioning System. And I got a GPS for Christmas, I believe, Christmas, a couple years ago uh, from Shelly's dad, and it has been one of the best gifts that I have ever had. Um, because here's what would happen. Before I would go on a trip, you know, like old school pre-GPS days, what I would do is I would get out a map, and maybe even pre-MapQuest like map quest days, you know. I would get out a map, and I would look at where I was and where I wanted to go, and I would get out a highlighter. Any of you ever done this before? I would get out a highlighter, and I'd be like, you know, this is the way I want to go. This is my path, right? This is the straight and narrow. I want to get from Houston to Corpus. I want to get from Dallas to Nashville, whatever. And so I draw my path, and then as you're driving, as you're taking the route, what would you do? Most, you know, every 30 minutes, hour, whatever, you would look, and you would make sure you're on the straight and narrow. Now, back in those days, if I happened to get off the path, if I happened to be driving and miss my exit, if I happened to be changing CDs and miss my exit, you know what I mean? You've done that before, I've done that before. I would get off the path. I would wander from the straight and narrow. Uh, if you've ever been lost before or kind of, you know, missed your exit on a road trip, then you know what I'm talking about. And what I would do is if that were to ever happen to me, and it's happened a few times, if that were to ever happen, I would be hopelessly lost. I, I mean, okay, 
fifth grade math reading, I didn't do so well there either. And so I'd get out the map and I'd be like, where am I? You know, how do I? And I would be helpless. I wouldn't know how to get back on the path. But lo and behold, I found GPS. It found me and I found it and I love it. And so now when I'm driving and I happen to miss an exit, which doesn't happen nearly as much because it tells you 10 times, turn right, turn right, in five miles, in one mile, in 10 seconds. You know you know what I mean, not really, but it tells you quite a bit. Take your exit. But if I ever happen to miss my exit while I have a GPS, what happens? You tell me, what happens? What will it say, those of you GPSers? Re- recalculating. Do, 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 do. Please, take such and such a road, right? And what it'll do is it'll recalculate either your route, a new route, to get back on the correct road, or it'll just say, maybe you have a UP, uh, GPS that says this, please make a legal U-turn. <laughs> please make the next legal U-turn. And it, I think they have to use the word legal, you know? Uh, make a U-turn, get back on the right path. And so now that I have a GPS, it's like money in the bank. Even if I stray, I have something there, it's a GPS, and it says, this is how you get back on the path. I think you see where I'm going with this. What James essentially says is that we are to be GPSs for one another. James says that when we see a brother going off the, off the path, or they've taken a, a wrong route, we are supposed to say to them, recalculating, make a U-turn. As soon as possible, we are supposed to get them back on the right path. And so, James says, if we do this, two things will happen. Notice what he says. If anyone wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, verse 20, let him know. A couple things A couple things happen when we do this for another believer in Christ. Number one, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. What James, I believe, means here is that we prevent a rebellious believer from physically dying under the hand of God's discipline. We talked about this last week. It's completely within the realm of the New Testament revelation that God, on occasion, if there is a rebellious believer living in sin, not walking according to him, that God may allow them to get sick and God may allow them to even die. I have a... I said a friend. Shelly's mom uh, shared this story, and I may have shared it before, but a lady that she knows who goes to their church, who went to their church, I should say, um, for years and years and years, seemingly a, a faithful Christian involved in the life of the church, growing in her faith, all of those things. And she didn't listen to the GPSs in her life. She didn't make a U-turn. She didn't, you know, take the next available exit. And long story short, she got into all sorts of stuff she shouldn't have, drinking way too much, partying, forgetting her children and her responsibilities at home. And this went on for a while until she got a liver disease. And way prematurely, how old was she? 40s? 40s died of of, of a liver, liver disease. And while I can't say this for sure, it's my hunch that this may have been God's divine discipline on the life of this believer. And I think that this is what James is saying, giving the entire context of what we've looked at uh, today and last week. And so we will do number one, we will prevent 
this kind of thing from happening. Number two, we point them towards a restored fellowship with God. Notice what he says. Number one, brings back a sinner and will save the soul from death. Number two, will cover a multitude of sins. Will cover a multitude of sins. I think what James is simply saying is that we bring that person back and we restore their fellowship with God. Um, we lead them to forgiveness of their rebellious acts and we cover their sins. And so James, in closing, says there's a responsibility that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to ask you, as we've talked about this responsibility, maybe there's someone that God has brought to mind. Maybe you've been hearing this and you, you, there's the, the, the image of that person. You know who it is. It's a relative. It's a friend. It's someone you went to high school with. It's a coworker. Maybe it's someone in your small group. Maybe it's a, a, a sibling or, or a father or a mother. And as we talk about this, that person is in your mind. I want to challenge you to do this, to take that responsibility with him. Pray for wisdom and love and kindness and boldness. But think about how you can be in that person's life a GPS, how you can say to them in so many words, you need to recalculate your direction. You need to take a U-turn because James says, this is our responsibility. So in closing this morning, uh, I, I wonder... I often wonder this. In America, in Illinois, in Sister Park, in my home, and in your home, and in my life, and in your life as a believer in Christ, I wonder if we were living our Christian life like I was playing my first game of paintball. I wonder if we live our Christian life, if we fight our spiritual battles, every man for himself. If we're playing every man for himself. James tells us this morning, if we practice confession, if we confess our sins to one another, if we pray... For one another. James tells us if we take responsibility from one another, our spiritual life will go from every man for himself to two man capture the flag. Because as the old World War veteran says, no one likes to be in a foxhole alone. Father, we're grateful for these words that you have for us. Father, they're difficult. I pray that you would help us to not see our life as individualistic, as our spiritual life is solely our responsibility. Father, we tend to think that it's all on our shoulders. I pray that we would be willing to accept help that others want to give us and be willing to give help when it's necessary. Father, I pray that you would help us to break through the barriers of confessing our sins to one another. I pray that you would give us boldness, that we would confess our sin if there's someone that we need to confess to. Father, that we would um, confess to other people if there are people that we need uh, in our life to give us accountability and help. Father, I pray for your help and grace in that. I pray that we would pray for one another. Father, give us great boldness, not just to pray for physical needs, but, Father, to pray for the spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters. If we care for them, and I believe we do, Father, that we would pray for them. Finally, I pray that you would help us to take responsibility, Father, that we, you would set people on our hearts if there are people in our realm of relationships, and that we would take that responsibility and be the GPS in their life. Father, we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that he has paid the penalty for our sins. And that if we have placed our faith in him, uh, that we are forgiven and that we are made clean and that we are right with you forever and ever. Uh, Father, I pray for any person here who may not know Jesus, who doesn't know what it is to be forgiven and changed and renewed and born again. I pray that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name.